What do a dead giraffe, a robot hand, and a grand piano have in common? They're all objects found in the waterways around New York City. A digital journal called Underwater New York publishes stories, art, and music inspired by objects discovered in the shadowy depths of the city's waterways. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Nikki Pombier Berger is the founding editor of Underwater New York. She recently dropped by our studios with Underwater New York editor Helen Georges for a conversation. So, Nikki, let's start with you. What is the mission of Underwater New York? Um, we are a, a digital journal of stories, art, and music inspired by objects found underneath the waterways of New York City and the waterways themselves. And so we publish creative work that's inspired by this list that we curate of wacky, evocative things that have been found or rumored to be found or historically known to be under the waterways around New York. So things like the body of a giraffe that the Army Corps of Engineers The body, up. hold on, you, you got yeah. me stuck at the body of a giraffe. Yes, yes, that is um, one of the favorite objects on our list. So all we know is that sometime in the mid-80s, I believe 1985, um, the Army Corps of Engineers, um, as they were, so they sort of dredged the, um, the, the New York Harbor, sort of ridding it of big debris that might get caught in the engines of ships. In the course of doing that work, they dredged up what, um, they found to be a giraffe skeleton. So there was no explanation. There was no sort of tracing it back to a source. So it's a mystery. And it's um, one of the objects on our list that people have been most inspired to make creative work from. We had a an event last fall where we screened a short film that Bobby Gagnon made. He wrote an original piece of music and used archival imagery of... Um, naval imagery and imagery of a giraffe to create a short piece that we screened at the Brooklyn Barge, all inspired by this sort of somewhat anecdotal piece of information that we, we found about this this giraffe found in the harbor. And that's really the mission of Underwater New York is to take this, um, this list of, of things that um, – help us that and, and sort of send it out into the world for people to reimagine or to imagine something new from them. I love how you describe the list on the site, Helen. You describe the list as things that have been lost, found, sunk, or surfaced in the waters surrounding New York City. Yeah, it's, um, it's a list of objects that we've discovered through reading historical newspaper articles or current newspaper articles, um, everyday citizens, um, if they happen to see something floating or surfaced, um, walking by a body of water like the Gowanus or Dead Horse Bay is is, is a big one, then um, we encourage them to email us and get in touch with us, and we'll add it to our list of objects. It's a long list. I have it here. It's, it's a long many list. many pages. I printed it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Dead giraffe tops the list. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a <laughs> yeah. hot one. Yeah, it's it's a hot one. Kangamouse is another yeah. hot one. Yeah. Kangamouse? Kangamouse is, um, it's sort of become our unofficial mascot, but it's a plastic toy, a pink plastic toy that looks like a hybrid between a mouse and a kangaroo that we found um, during one of our excursions to Dead Horse Bay. It was washed ashore. It was just sort of lying in the sand and um it uh called out to us and <laughs> 
Um, numerous pieces on the site have been written around Kanga Mouse. So we have a poem by Mattia Harvey, a short piece by Chris Adrian. We've had photographic work around Kanga Mouse, too. Um, Nura Qureshi did a really awesome portrait of Kanga Mouse, a studio, studio portrait of, of Kanga Mouse. And so it's one of our quirkier finds, and it's it's inspired a lot of work on the site. Now, we have to talk more specifically about Dead Horse Bay, because I'm sure a lot of people listening aren't familiar with Dead Horse Bay, but it really is quite the fascinating place. Yeah. So Dead Horse Bay is uh, the name of a beach that anyone can go to now. You can go on Flatbush Avenue all the way out just before you cross the bridge into, into the Rockaways. The beach is there to your left. But it was once once an island called Barren Island um, that from the 1850s to the early to the 1920s um, was the site of a number of trash rendering factories. And so for decades, the daily animal dead from all five boroughs would be sent to Barren Island to be rendered into oil, glycerin, and other byproducts. Um, and for a number of years, all of the garbage from all five boroughs was sent there as well. Um, and what's fascinating about this this place is that the factories were all run by immigrants, mostly from Poland and from Italy. Um, and there weren't really facilities on the island, and there wasn't really – the island was pretty isolated from mainland Brooklyn to the extent that mainland Brooklyn organized an anti-Baron Island League at one point to try to shut down the factories because the stench coming across from this industry was so – was so profound. But if you read old 19th century articles about the place, it seems like there was like quite a lively sense of community there and a, just the the point of view of mainland Brooklynites towards the people who lived on Barren Island was probably in keeping with what you might expect them to think of immigrants from, from Poland and, and Italy. But it's also there's a sort of there are all these strange happenings, just sort of mysterious events on the island that get told in this really wacky, wonderful tone. So that's some of the history that I find really rich. But the reason that we find it to be such a rich site for our work now is because um, so in 1927, the island was – all of the r remaining um, residents on the island were evacuated, and Robert Moses, sort of in his vision for the Gateway Marina Parkway, packed in that delta area with trash, with landfill, with tar, with sand, and created um, the, the Marine Parkway Reserve. And in the 50s, a cap on one of the landfills burst, and because of the location of that um, that burst and the current pattern – there's a continual flow of trash from the early 20th century that washes ashore to this day. And it's a lot of broken bottles and a lot of horse bones. So there were horses rendered um, in these factories and their bones were tossed into the bay. So there, you'll still find bones washing ashore today. Lots of shoes. Lots of wacky Plast toys. Plastic toys. Plastic toys like Kangamouse. Yeah. I was going to say at least one Kangamouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about some of the other items that are on your list. An old dining table underneath the waters oh, of New the, York City. The Formica Dinette standing mm -hmm. upright, um, in standing the East upright in the East River near 16th Street. It's one of the most specific descriptions that we have. Yeah. How was that discovered? Do you know? How would someone know that there is this dinette table underneath the water? I think that one was the... New York sort of underwater detectives of New York City um, have a number of landmarks or they they refer to. So I should say that the object this. Do you want to know the story of how we started? Yeah, because that's actually mm -hmm. connected here. Go ahead. In, so Helen and we have another co-editor, Nicole Haratunian, 
um, and I went to Sarah Lawrence together and studied writing. And um, as we were graduating, um, I was sent this article in New York Magazine written by Chris Bananos called Secrets of the Deep. And it listed, I think, 30 items that were found underwater around New York City. And they seemed like really good points of entry to a story, to fiction. So I circulated the article to friends suggested that everybody pick an object off the list and we'd write about it over the summer, get together and workshop it, maybe have a party. And the idea really took hold and grew from there. So what did you write about, Nikki? Oh, well, actually, so as we started, as the concept grew, we added to our list. So I didn't pick something from that original okay. list. I wrote about the birdcage and the Gowanus. The birdcage and a the bird Gowanus. The birdcage and the Gowanus, yeah. What did you write about the birdcage and the Gowanus? Well... <laughs> I wrote a story that took place at the top of the rock, actually, and ended up in the with a birdcage in the Gowanus okay. about a magician. Hmm. And is that still available online? Yes. Yes, it is. Helen, what about you? What was your story from that? I wrote about a Lincoln Continental, and I'm forgetting the exact year, but it's on the list, um, <laughs> that was found off one of the piers. Um, I think in the 70s or 80s um, in Coney Island. And so it ended up being a story that, of course, features the Lincoln, but it's it's mainly about a family and um, two male cousins in particular who happen to be Greek, as I am, and um, sort of how the car sort of came about being in one of their possessions and then how it, you know, ended up in the water and the stories the stories on the site so what fun to allow your imagination to run wild with these objects huh it's a lot of fun i mean as nikki said um we met as writers in the sarah lawrence uh mfa program and you our site is really a creative project and it is like the imagination is obviously central and where that imagination goes and the forms that it can take in terms of poetry, fiction, nonfiction. Um, nonfiction, obviously, it may be a little less creative or imaginative, but um, that's the focus of our site. It's sort of like the imagination anchored, no pun intended, <laughs> to New York City's waterways and New York City's history. And the creation of an like an opportunity for people to make, you know, and to to respond to a prompt. I think that that was one of the things that we were worried about losing when we graduated from our program. And so um, and one of the things that's been most exciting, I think, over the seven years that we've been running this project is to see the way that people just new people are constantly responding to this invitation, this invitation to imagine and not just to make something for the sake of making it, but then to have a place to share it with others and then have opportunities to come together. We we host a number of events that are all thematically relevant. Some of them are excursions, but others happen in partnership with museums or organizations or institutions that are doing something that is a good match. And so we'll have a reading or an art talk or some kind of performance um, and just, you know, opportunities to not just bring new people into our audience, but give our contributors um, new opportunities to um, connect people to their work. You have a long list of contributors. Yeah. I think, yeah, at this point, I think we're around 150 contributors. So writers, um, artists, filmmakers, musicians. It's a long list that we hope will continue to grow. Yeah, and one of the things that I love, I mean, we really take work that we that moves us or it, we're not 
it's enough. It really is a platform that's open to people what, at any stage in their career. What know? are among the contributions that have moved you the most? Would you say? Not playing favorites. I know it's hard to play favorites. <laughs> I will say that the Kanga Mouse story and poem, mm-hmm. uh, the story by Chris Adrian and poem by Mattia Harvey, are two of the pieces that I keep coming back and back to. Um, yeah, as just sort of really moving. <laughs> and yeah. Well, we have the poem here if you, yeah. if you want us to read Indulge it. Indulge me, please. <laughs> okay, so this is... Um, Kanga Mouse by Mattia Harvey, who is a well-known poet. She teaches at Sarah Lawrence College. She's an editor at Jubilat. Um, I don't have her current biography right in front of me, but um, this is her poem, Kanga Mouse. This is what the last ones left us. After the era of flood and after the era of fire, we creep into the central clusters and rifle through the rubble. From the top of a cliff, Two pink eyes and one pale ear beckon. The word splitter names the creature Kanga Mouse, male. It is not one of their bee-withs, which were almost universally furred, nor a listen-to, since he makes no sound, nor is there a mention of Kanga Mouse in the Aesop's fables found in a Ziploc in Zone 12 some 20 years ago. We still cannot make a Ziploc, but we know all about morals, try before you trust, and might makes right. We try to tease one out. If a mouse can make its home in a hole, are we to understand we will live on without the sun? If the kangaroo keeps its children in a pocket, is it wise to keep our gimmies close to, though they wail and steal our food? Perhaps kangamouse has something to do with their mysterious notion of play, a type of waiting for sunset that involved throwing spheres and grimacing. He may well be yet another withholder, since when we press on his button, like all the other gods we found and abandoned, nothing happens. Night makes light, we murmur, and look up at the sky with the face the last ones called hope. All that from Kangamouse. All that from Kangamouse. <laughs> an entire world, a future world, a post-apocalyptic world where they're trying to envision what life, or Mattia has envisioned, what life is was once like um, in our world based on what was left behind, Kanga Mouse being one of the objects left behind. So that for me reminds me of some of the work that we have on our site that came to us after Sandy and um, the, you know, the idea that our, our entire city is edged with water and bounded by water and that the, the water levels are, um, should be something <laughs> that we discuss with some kind of urgency. One of the pieces that I'm thinking of is a a short documentary made by a woman, Karis Schaefer, who um, did oral history interviews with two people who, um, whose home was affected by Sandy. Um, Helen, do you want to say a little more about that? Yeah. um, The two people featured in Karis's short film are um, my coworkers at Brooklyn college. I'm a librarian at Brooklyn college. Um, Sally Bowden, who is a librarian, and her husband, John Arruda, live in Sheepshead Bay. And John is a painter and um, has painted his entire adult life. And his life's work, pretty much, um, was stored in the basement of their Sheepshead Bay home, um, which was completely flooded um, during Sandy. And so Karis' piece is an interview with um, Sally and John about 
what happened and um, the meaning of making work and having it be lost. And also a conversation with Sally because so many of the paintings um, that John did and does, Sally is featured in the paintings. She's been his his muse. And so um, it's a really moving piece. And I remember going over to Sally and John's house after Sandy and sort of, you know, digging through the wreckage of their basement and having these like beautiful paintings of Sally in particular, just lying on the floor, completely destroyed and trying to salvage what we could. And then the pieces about sort of John, you know, coming, I guess, in a way coming to terms with like, what, what that means when something that you do and value has been lost through something like Sandy. Do you think that a lot of people simply forget how much we are surrounded by water in New York City until something like Sandy happens? I do. <laughs> I do too. I it's it's funny, it seems silly and ridiculous to say that you can live in New York City and forget that you know, we're surrounded by water, that we're a series of islands, there are working harbors all around us. And yet on a daily basis, I feel very disconnected in many ways from the water. And so it's, I think, personally, it's easy to forget. And I think that's part of the mission of our site, too. I mean, I think it says in our mission statement about, you know, our site being something that encourages people to sort of imagine or think about sort of the other landscape of New York, which you is call the waterways, waterways the sixth borough. The I love sixth that. Borough. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I think for me personally, that has been certainly one of the, the most profound impacts of this project, I think is really I, even something as simple as knowing names of islands or just, you know, the way that it's changed my understanding of the geography of the city by knowing even a little bit of not only the history, but the sort of the topography of the the edge. Um, and, you know, that it is, we may move through these hard lines on the island in our daily sort of like pedestrian <laughs> ways, but that we're not ever far from the very fluid sort of edge where the horizon is, you know, distant or not so in the case of the Hudson, it's just across the way. But, you know, it is a it's just a different it has given me a different orientation towards the landscape of the city that um, I don't know. It, 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 I appreciate. What would you say is the most underrated or underrepresented waterway in New York City? Hmm. Can we go with overrated? Sure. What's the most <laughs> overrated waterway? Let's start there. You know, I think I've been thinking about the Gowanus and all the development that's happening around mm -hmm. there. And there's an artist, um, Nicole and Tebby, made a really interesting, beautiful animation called Riparianism, um, which is on our site, but about uh, the Gowanus and Newtown Creek and the sort of the juxtaposition of these super fun sites with the high end luxury development happening around them. So I think that gets a lot of there's a lot of I don't even know if there's a lot of attention to that dynamic, but I think that there are sites that have such rich history that, again, our, our work is mostly about facilitating imaginative mm -hmm. exploration. But 
it it touches back to these sort of these stories from the past that um, or it surfaces these stories from the past that are really rich, like Heart Island, the story, um, the the island where the um, Potter's Field, the Potter's Field mm-hmm. is, um, that, you know, and that's starting to get a lot more attention too. So we collaborated with a visual artist and author, Elizabeth Albert, on a book called Silent Beaches, Untold Stories, New York City's Forgotten Waterfront. And it's a collection of um, historical narrative, archival imagery, contemporary art, and new fiction and poetry um, on 10 sort of liminal waterfront sites around New York City. And so Helen and our co-editor, Nicole Haratunian, and myself as Underwater New York edited the fiction and poetry for this collection written by Elizabeth. So I thought of the book because these 10 locations, you can, I mean, the history of them is, the Gowanus is in there as well, but there are lesser known um, waterfront sites in this book that have really rich, evocative histories that I hope new audiences will come to appreciate and ask ask more questions. Such as what? Give me an example of what's in the book outside of the Gowanus. Coney Island Creek, for example, it's um, it's similar to the Gowanus in that it's um, toxic. It's toxic. <laughs> <laughs> it's I'm going to say like abandoned and forgotten, but the the Gowanus being a super fun site, it's you know everyone knows about the Gowanus Canal and it's Lavender just like Lake, Lavender yeah. Lake exactly, and other places like Lavender Lake that are now you know you know, on the shores of the Gowanus, like a place that you would happily go to and drink a beer by. Um, But Coney Island Creek is similar in its toxicity, in its pollution, in its sort of out of the way-ness. It was a creek that um, was once a strait. It's a creek that was once a strait that connected Gravesend Bay to Sheepshead Bay. So it's it's sort of at the southernmost tip of Bensonhurst. It's the canal that made Coney Island an island. I know that when I first moved to New York, I couldn't understand um, why Coney Island was called an island when, in fact, it's a peninsula. But because of Coney Island Creek, at one point, being a thoroughfare and a shipping waterway that connected Gravesend Bay to Sheepshead Bay, it made Coney Island an island. But it is um, the site currently of a ship graveyard and a uh, sort of mysterious yellow submarine. and um, A mysterious yellow <laughs> submarine. Yes, a mysterious yellow submarine. It's a man-made submarine. It's uh, sort of uh, stuck in the uh, mucky uh, sort of waters of Coney Island Creek, kind of out in the middle of the creek. It's been there in its current position since the 1980s, I believe. But it's a man-made submarine built by uh, a shipyard worker named Jerry Bianco. Um, He decided that he wanted to build a submarine to um, sort of dive for treasure. Um, The Andrea Doria is a... uh, Ship that um, I think wrecked that yeah, yeah basically is it sunk off the coast of Nantucket in 1956 mm-hmm. and um, it is. There's lots of valuable cargo purported to be on the Andrea Doria, and according to maritime law, basically, if you can if you can dive and recover whatever's on the ship, it belongs to you. So Jerry Bianco, 
1966 decided that he was going to build a submarine to dive for treasure off the Andrea Doria. And so using his maritime know-how and um, salvaged material and bargain yellow paint, he built a submarine and launched it in 1970. It took him four years. People remember him building it sort of on the shores of, of Coney Island Creek. It took him four years. He launched it in 1970. And, um, Inauspiciously, almost immediately after the launch, the, there was a, an issue with the ballast in the submarine, and it immediately sank. He fundraised. He raised enough money to sort of, like, resurface it. It did apparently make some trips where it was able to raise some other wrecks, but it never made it to the Andrea Doria. In the 1980s, there was a huge storm um, that sort of unmoored it from where it was docked. Um, on Coney Island Creek and like dragged it out into the middle of the creek and it still sits there today. Still. Still. <laughs> it's still there. And it's surrounded by um, other abandoned ships. It, Coney Island Creek is a place where I think especially during the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, people who no longer wanted their ships, didn't want to dispose of them properly, didn't want to pay to have them disposed of properly, just took them to Coney Island Creek and burned them down to the waterland waterline and just left them there and they're they're still there speaking of coney island there's a song on your website called dreamland that references coney island And of course, there are other songs on your website as well, in addition to this song, Dreamland. So like I I mentioned, Bobby Gagnon wrote a piece for the giraffe that he um, set to images and produced a short film last year at our launch party, which was aboard the lightship frying pan, which is itself a once underwater object. Um, It's this party boat. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, It's a party boat that's docked in the in the Hudson. Um, And it was a a light ship that patrolled the shoals off the coast of North Carolina, and it sank, and it was dredged up and brought up to New York City and docked on the Hudson and turned into this really rusty, barnacled, sort of textured (laughs) party boat um, where we had our launch party. They were kind enough to let us launch there, so it was a pretty perfect setting for us. And um, we had Stephen Taylor perform a couple original songs Um, at that party. I think you can listen to those on the site. And Michael Hurst, who is a a composer who has an album of songs for ice cream trucks that he wrote. One of the objects on our list is a fleet of ice cream trucks that's off the coast of the Rockaways that is um, used as a reef. And so he, inspired by that, took one of his songs for ice cream trucks and underwaterized it. And then at our launch party, he had this little ice cream cart that we made to look as if it had been um, sunken and surfaced, and no, it great. had the, the music <laughs> emanating out from it. So, yeah. Now, despite being the founding editor of a website about things found underwater in New York City, I understand that you are afraid 
of diving. Oh, yes. I mean... <laughs> I'm not interested myself in going underwater. We don't quite belong there. We don't have gills. We're not, we don't breathe under. Yeah, it doesn't. I'm a little claustrophobic. The idea of actually going down there is not appealing to me. It's enough to imagine it. Helen, what about you? I, I remember taking like the initial portion of a scuba diving course, the part where you do um, – you know, the lesson in the pool, but I never made it as far as like the open diving part. So <laughs> it's not really clearly an interest, like a deep interest of mine since I since I never actually got my license for scuba diving. So but I have met. So one of um, the people I met in the course of I've met in the course of this project is a man named Ed Fanuzzi, who's been he's a lifelong Staten Islander and he's been diving the waters of New York City for um, 60 years and his stories don't really make me want to dive, mm -hmm. but I don't know. They have me thinking about it. He's, it's, he's, he's an incredible storyteller and he's got a collection of underwater objects, a yard full of once underwater objects. That's enough for a project of its own. So if someone's interested in going through the list and creating content to contribute to the site, how do they go about doing that? Um, anyone can go to our website, underwaternewyork.com, and there's a, a tab where you can see all the objects. Um, you can peruse that list and um, make something inspired by one of those objects. Take it as a point of entry, as a beginning, and you can send us your work at submissions at underwaternewyork.com. Well, it's a fascinating dive. There's a pun. <laughs> <laughs> there are many puns on the yes. site, so it's entirely in keeping yes. with... With the, with the project. Thanks, welcome. Helen, thank you so much. Thank you. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, George. Once again, the site is underwaternewyork.com. Nikki Pombier-Berger is the founding editor. Helen Georges is an editor. My name is George Boraki. This has been Cityscape. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.